0: episode 312 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Mr. Infiltrator. It comes from the band The Mighty Swells off their album Off the Top with The Mighty Swells. You can find them at themightyswells.bandcamp.com They're also on Facebook. They're a surf band based out of Montreal. They're pretty darn cool and they gave us permission to play their music here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show, your weekly show devoted to nothing but classic monsters with modern talk, and I'm excited because I've got another new voice on the show this week. One of the things I wanted to do in 2017 was bring some new voices into the mix, and this time around we have Court PsyOps from the podcast Cinema PsyOps. Cinema PsyOps is part of the Legion Podcast Network. You can find out more about them over at legionpodcasts.com. Check out some of the psy-ops. When you're done listening to Court talk with me about the classic, and this time I mean it. This is a classic film, Bride of Frankenstein. Now, this episode was actually recorded over a month ago, and I want to give big thanks to Court because he really bailed me out. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I had a massive hard drive failure gone, kaput, completely unreadable. Well, That hard drive had a handful of recordings on it, courts being one of them. Well, court, because he's a podcaster, recorded our conversation for backup. And that's the file that I use to create this week's conversation. So, court. Thank you so much. And, you know, before we get to that conversation with Court, why don't we dive into some feedback? I had an email come in from our friend Alan Trump. He's been on the show in the past. It's been too long since I've had him on, though. We need to have him back on again here. Well, sooner rather than later, I hope. Anyway, he wrote in regarding last week's episode when we talked about the movie The Slime People. Hi, Derek. Hey, I very much enjoyed the show you and Seb Godain did on The Slime People. I had no idea. The original script planned to have the slime guys use wolfmen as shock troops. Well, why not? In Doctor Who, the Daleks sometimes use an eight-man race called the Orgruns as brutal enforcers in their cosmic empire. Okay, I'm going to cut in here. I don't watch Who. I'm not a Whovian. I do keep meaning to go back to watch some classic Who so I can at least... Kind of know what I'm talking about, but I may have very well mispronounced the name of the ape man race. Is it Ogrons? 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 The Dalek's 8 men, shock troops. Anyway, back to his email. I never got to see The Slime People as a kid. I first saw it in my 20s when Sinister Cinema in California aired it. I enjoy it because it falls into that strange subcategory of science fiction horror films where a small group of human survivors are besieged by invading monsters, like Target Earth, The Earth's Die Screaming, and even Night of the Living Dead. I think the monster costumes are really imaginative in the film. But do you know what my favorite schlocky aspect of their design is? Those goofy little Fu Manchu mustache barbells hanging off the sides of their mouths. It kind of makes them look like giant catfish. When I went fishing with my dad, he always said to steer clear of the barbells because they could sting you. So everybody watch out if the slime people try to kiss you. Not a problem unless you're Susan Hart, though, I guess. (laughs) Okay. All right. Anyway, he continues, I agree with Seb about liking Les Tremaine's performance in Larry Buchanan's Creature of Destruction, but I'm afraid I must frown on Les' amorous relationship with his goat in The Slime People. I try to be open-minded, and I know the heart wants what it wants, but I just can't see anyone bringing a fugitive from the barnyard home to meet the folks. That's just not right. <laughs> great program as always. And you bet I'll put my votes in on the rondos for for tolo for the Monstrous Hall of Fame, as well as yourself for Monster Kid of the Year. To paraphrase one of the Japanese scientists from Gigantis the Fire Monster, a new podcast came out on Thursday and we all learned so much. <laughs> Best wishes to you and all your great listeners. Take care, Alan. I loved having Seb on the show. It was a great time. It was refreshing. Like I said, you know, new voices. I like having new people in the mix and. Not to make a huge deal out of it, but Seb's younger than us. You know, He's not part of Generation X, which is what I'm part of, or the Baby Boomers, which were the original Monster Kids. Seb's a millennial, I think. He's in his 20s. Is that millennial? I'm not sure I should check. But anyway, Seb's younger than us, and that he loves these movies as much as we do. I mean, that's encouraging. I enjoyed the heck out of the slime people. And you're absolutely right. Their face... Very catfish-like, and I like that because, it again, it gives it that kind of slimy effect. It makes those creatures feel even slimier than they are. Yeah, they look a little moist or whatever, but having that fish-like quality on the front of their face with their mouth and all that gives it even more of that kind of muckiness feeling, and man, I dig it. Like I told Seb, I want a whole bunch of action figures of nothing but slime people. I'd cover my desk with those things. It'd be a blast. Thanks for writing in, Alan. And as is typical, whenever Alan writes in, I always say we're going to have him on the show to talk about the Astro Zombies. It will happen. I swear it will happen sometime this year. We'll see an email from Joe Iden. Joe wrote in and said, hey, Derek, Joe Iden here. Hope all is well with you and MKR. Just wanted to drop you a quick line on a film I just came across but should have seen by now. From 1957, The Land Unknown. I was aware of the film, but for whatever reason, never saw it. I finally did pop it in the DVD player over the weekend. Yes, I did have it on DVD, but I have no excuse for not ever seeing it. Well, I got to tell you how much I thoroughly enjoyed the film. Well written, well acted, and for the time, the effects are really done well. I even went and tried to find out about the cast, crew, and production. Not too much out there, but still pretty interesting. I don't know if you ever covered it on MKR, but this is one I'd love to get the MKR stamp of approval for. Great film. I was just wondering if you've ever seen it. I'll bet you have. Take care, Joe Iden. Joe is the man behind the Fandom Radio Podcast. Check it out. There's a Podbean page, so FandomRadioPodcast.Podbean.com, or look it up in iTunes. He's got a listing there as well. Earlier this month, he reviewed Kong Skull Island movie. He talked about Mighty Joe Young, King Kong vs. Skull He did a whole bunch of Kong stuff leading up to Skull Island, and I enjoyed the episode, so go check that out. Joe, uh, The Land Unknown, have I seen it? No, I have not. I thought I had. This is one of those ones that I was aware of. But there are so many movies that have these uh, dinosaurs in them like this that that I kind of jumbled them up in my head. And recently I haven't done myself any favors because I've been watching uh, a lot of um, trailer compilation DVDs and watching trailer Video shows basically on YouTube, and I see trailers for these things. And eventually, I see these trailers so much my brain starts thinking I've actually seen the film when I really haven't. So, no, I haven't seen this movie. And you know what? I'm going to put it out there right now publicly. Joe, let's say you and I talk about The Land Unknown on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. What do you say? Let's make it happen, man. I'll drop you a line by this weekend. You know, and speaking of having people on the show, you know, if you head over to monsterkidradio dot net, you can click on where it says be a guest on MKR. There's a little survey there. I ask you to fill out with your name, email address, what topic you might want to talk about, what times and days are best for you, and maybe we'll have you on the show in the future. That'd be fun, don't you think? I'd love to have you on the show. I have you part of the Monster Kid Radio community, family, clubhouse, cabal, something. Anyway, Joe, thank you for writing in. Alan, thank you for writing in. If you want to write in like Joe and Alan, you can do that by emailing monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, we have a voicemail line as well. So if you ever want to call in a voicemail, you can do so by calling 503-479-5657. It's 503-479-5MKR, and I'll put you in the mix. Why don't we go ahead and get to our conversation with Court Psyops about the classic film, Bride of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale. We're going to get to that right after this.
1: Suddenly, a man dies at the controls of a train, suddenly a car swerves to destruction, suddenly a plane dives to death, the earth dies screaming. Suddenly, death descends on the four corners of the Earth, and only a handful of human beings survive to live in fear, powerless to combat an unknown terror. Turn it off! Who are you? Is that away? I'm not the enemy. I don't know who the enemy is. The Earth Dies Screaming, and the Robots Take Over. Starring Willard Parker, Virginia Field, Dennis Price. You said that she was dead. She was. She was alive enough tonight, except her eyes. Well, what was the matter with them? She hasn't got any eyes. Here is paralyzing suspense as the earth dies screaming. Electrifying terror as the earth dies screaming. Jeff! Peggy! Peggy! The robots! Peggy! I am Dr. Lee Cushing.
2: Welcome to
1: my Chamber
2: of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, the Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game.
3: My goal is to recreate
4: the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires,
3: werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline.
2: Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the Chamber is always waiting
1: for its next victim.
3: 1947, the bird expedition to the South Pole reported a warm water oasis deep inside the icy Antarctic. This is the story of another expedition and of what might be found, what might happen today in that remote unexplored last frontier on earth, unchanged since prehistoric times, the land unknown. Could man have survived in the dinosaur age of mighty monsters? Shudder at history's most ferocious killer, Tyrannosaurus rex. The battle of the great Stegosauri. Huge carnivorous man-eating plants. The incredible water monster, Elasmosaurus.
1: We'll never get out of here, Alan. Never, never. Stop it, do you hear me? Stop it. This doesn't sound like you. We're not lit yet.
3: That's how I rule
1: them. Where's the wreck? Talk.
5: You're gonna rot here. This is Sarah Karloff, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio.
0: I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear, and I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. I said it before, I'm going to say it again. I love getting new voices on Monster Kid Radio. New perspective and new new podcasters, actually. I've never had this podcaster... On the show before, so I want to welcome from Cinema Psyops, Court Psyops. Welcome, sir.
4: Oh, I am so happy to be on Monster Kid Radio, Derek. I was so ecstatic whenever you actually first started this podcast. I think one of the first uh, email feedbacks that I did for you was accusing you of taking my brain and turning it into a podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's it's surf rock, monster surf rock, classic monster movies, you know. And then you start talking about all of the stuff that I love on the show, and I'm just like, okay, is he specifically trying to get me to listen to this show? Did he open up my skull and pull my brain out and just try to turn it into a podcast? Because it sure feels like it. And I've I've been listening since day one, and I absolutely love it. So this is a thrill to be on the show.
0: And see, listeners, that's how you get to be a guest on Monster Kid Radio. You just tell me... No, Well, I'm glad you've been around from the very beginning. And I don't know what it is about surf rock and and monster movies that go so well together. Have you figured
4: it out? I believe it actually has a lot to do with the car culture, bringing the two together, like with uh, the rat fink and uh, that sort of thing where they would have that painted on the sides of hot rods where they have these different types of creatures and surfing monster movies cheeseburgers and uh, drive-ins i mean it all just kind of goes together
0: yeah yeah i can see that i could see or hear that i suppose <laughs> i love my i love my surf music and i love like i said having other voices on the show but this isn't the first time i've heard your voice or had your voice in my ear like i said you're the man behind cinema psyops which is a weekly podcast how long's it been going
4: A little over a year and about a half right now. It'll be two years in August. It sometimes feels like significantly less and sometimes feels like significantly more.
0: I have the same issue depending on where I am in my editing. Yeah.
4: (laughs) Right. You're right. If you're in the middle of like editing a special that's like super long, you're like, God, how long have I been doing this and why do I keep doing this to myself? Yeah, I've been there.
0: <laughs> and another and other podcasters who are listening to this have been there as well. I'm sure. Uh, what is Cinema Psyops? I want listeners to know what it is so they can check it out when they're done listening to this, of course.
4: Well, I would have to warn some of your listeners because you kind of keep your show a little bit more, uh, let's say, family friendly. But uh, ours is definitely not. Cinema Psyops is a weekly podcast that essentially the the tagline is where I'm experimenting on the mind of an unwilling test subject by forcing him to watch. Films that not only myself, but other film fanatics have seen at far too young of an age. And we're trying to kind of see like this very childlike and innocent mind, how we can kind of corrupt him. And the show's kind of, let's just say, devolved from there. Think like early 90s shock jock sort of radio personalities. But instead of talking about the kind of stuff that Howard Stern would be talking about... We're talking mostly about like horror movies and uh, exploitation films and that kind of stuff with that sort of perspective. It's very immature for a mature audience, if you will. So, you know, a lot of naughty, naughty talk going on. But at the same time, I want to look into the films more and kind of delve into some of the meanings behind it and sort of analyze a different perspective on the films than a, like you're just normal, like immature fandom. So that's kind of where we're coming from with Cinema Psyops. We attempt to aspire to more intelligent talk, but we just kind of get delved down into the potty talk a little bit sometimes, too.
0: So fair warning, listeners, that's that's what you're going to get. But it's still a fun and enjoyable show, and it sounds great. Before we started recording, Court and I were having a little bit of shop talk, the different kind of equipment and what we're doing to kind of upgrade our systems and, and what we're doing to make our show sound as good as it possibly can. So Court brings that that attention to audio detail to his show, and you also contributed to Monster Kid Radio in the form of dropping some lines for the promo that sometimes gets played on various podcasts, so I appreciate you for that as well.
4: Yeah, I've got a lot of great friends who are actually pretty good at doing impressions of various people, and uh, we had a a sort of 50s trailer-style voice that uh, a friend of mine, Sean, from the now-on-hiatus Geek Chat Army did, and then I did my pretty shoddy peter laurie impression for you for one of them as well
5: prepare for a spine-tingling nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters you won't believe your ears when you listen to monster kid radio here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic monsters, modern talk, and ahead of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster yeah. Radio. <laughs> I love
0: it. I love it. Well, listeners... You know, if you've been with the show for a while, you know that we have a little game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. Every time we bring somebody new to the show, we've got to play a round of the Classic Five.
4: Oh, yay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've got a deck of cards here. I'd say probably like 50 or 60 cards. And each card has a yes or no, this or that style question on them, all pertaining to classic monster movies. There are no wrong answers, but we're going to go through five of these and hear what Port has to say. Get to know them a little bit better. What, what do you think?
4: Oh, absolutely. I'm excited. I was hoping I'd get to play the Classic Five.
0: Oh yeah. Every first timer gets to play it. Let me give it one more shuffle here. I've been shuffling the whole time, but all right. Card number one, question number one, hammer films or amicus productions.
4: Ooh, I'm going to have to go solid hammer films on this. If I have to choose between the two, it's going to be hammer.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much where I, I fall too. So
4: Larry, if you're listening,
0: Dr. Gang green, sorry, but I'm hammer films as well. I know he loves his amicus, so.
4: If you gave me more, like, more choices instead of one or the other, then I would, Uh if you said, like, hammer and amicus versus something else, then it would definitely be, like, you know, amicus, if you will.
0: Oh, there you go. There you go. (laughs) All right, card number two. What prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own?
4: Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, the more appropriate answer would be what wouldn't I like to own right? but uh, yeah, that's
0: true. We, we only have limited space. <laughs> uh,
4: okay, so I have to narrow it down to one specific thing. <laughs> <laughs> These are not yeah see they're 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 supposed to be yes or no, but this is definitely not an easy thing. Um, I would definitely definitely like to have. The creature from Creature from the Black Lagoon, particularly like the actual suit, if it were preserved in some way, shape, or form, like on a mannequin and ready to go. I would love oh, to wow. have that. I would I would hug it every day. Even though I would be afraid that the oils of my skin would degrade it every time I touched it. I would I would love to have that. It's a beautiful, beautiful monster suit.
0: It really is. It's one of the the i be- I'm well listeners again, they know. Yeah. You all <laughs> know. That's my favorite film, so. Yeah, court's slowly becoming one of my favorites. Okay, here we go. Card number three. <laughs> Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Helsing, Dr. Waldman, or Dr. Mueller.
4: Oh, man. Again. I know, right? (laughs) I'm going to go with Dr. Helsing. I'm going to take him as Dr. Helsing.
0: Okay. Yeah. The the classic.
4: Yeah, because I can't can't separate him from Helsing in my mind as much as I can the other ones as easily. And that was my first inclination was to jump on Helsing. So I'm just going to go with that.
3: Okay.
0: Fair enough. I am... Dracula.
5: A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible,
1: I mistrust my own judgment.
3: Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Card
0: number four, Lon Chaney or Lon Chaney Jr.
5: Oh, come on.
0: (laughs) Hey, man, it's all random. I didn't stack the deck here.
4: (laughs) Oh, okay. I'm going to have to go with Jr., but only because the Wolfman happens to be my favorite universal monster and... Lon Jr. is the wolf man. I can't separate that from my childhood love in any way, shape or form, but that's so unfair. That was such a Sophie's choice. I feel like I've betrayed both of the Cheneys right there having to choose.
0: (laughs) If it helps, I don't think either one of them are listening right now. So
4: yeah, fair enough. (laughs) But in my mind, I'm still heartbroken having to choose. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right.
0: Final card. Here we go. Oh, another universal style question.
4: House of Dracula or House of Frankenstein? house of frankenstein definitely
0: yeah it really is a superior film I'm, I'm
4: gonna agree with you there
0: but there's no wrong answers if people like house of dracula good on you i mean i like it too but house of frankenstein just feels better
4: i watched it more as a kid and i loved it more and it's my second favorite monster mashup after frankenstein meets the wolf man and it just the two go together really really well you can watch them back to back and really have a great time
0: that's true they do kind of bleed into each other rather well well that was the classic five how do you feel
4: a little, little sad I had to choose between the two Cheneys, but other than that, I think I did okay.
0: <laughs> well, the next time we have you on, we'll play it again because I am working on a new deck. New questions coming so we can keep the fun going with the Classic Five and make people make terrible decisions and choices uh, <laughs> making one over the other. That's that's going to continue to happen. So, thanks for playing, sir. Oh, that was a blast. Now, we didn't just have you here to talk about the Classic Five, and, and I'm glad we talked about your podcast, but we're here to talk about a movie. say is the best sequel of all time. 1935's Bride of Frankenstein. Those
4: people would be right in my eyes.
0: Yeah. Big fan, I'm assuming.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't pick it just specifically for that reason, but it definitely is, as far as I'm concerned, in the original run of the, it definitely the Frankenstein films that Universal did, but also maybe in their first run of the Universal Monster series, this may be the pinnacle. I don't think it got much better than this film. The other ones wow. came pretty close. Now, when I say the original run, obviously, Creature comes much later. It comes in like the 50s, so oh, that's like a renaissance, if you will, where it kind of rebuilt. But for me, anyway, I don't want to say that it's the best film ever in that series, but it's certainly the pinnacle for me, the one that I enjoy the most.
0: I agree. I mean, it's a superior film. I have to be honest, though. The first time I saw it, I was a little disappointed. The first time I saw it, I don't think I got it. And maybe I mean, that says something about who I was when I was much younger and was just getting into these movies. These days, I adore this film. It's fantastic. So well done. Do you remember the first time you saw it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was probably the second or third of the monster films that I was actually able to see. I know you've talked about it before, but the Crestwood monster house series was a big part of my childhood. My school library had almost all of the runs of the original orange covered books that they did. And I would check out one every day where I would have one that I would check it out and keep it for however long, two or three days. And then as soon as that one was put back, I would get the next one. But the one that I always gravitated towards the most, well, there's two, but the one that I gravitated towards the most was the Frankenstein book. And my mother actually took notice that I was into this kind of stuff. The first film she rented for me was Dracula from the local library. She got a hold of a, a tape of that. And then this one was the second one that I got to see. So I actually saw this before the original Frankenstein. I would say I was probably what age is kind of a little bit little bit foggy, but I'm gonna say around like seven or eight, somewhere around that time frame where you're just starting to become like a burgeoning monster kid if you will. and I I think most of us. I would say like you and I are probably like a second wave of monster kids that were influenced by these kinds of books, like the Crestwood house monster series. Sure. Sure. And, uh, I think most of us that are from that, that sort of second wave have gotten that influence from those books and have probably seen the films like from this type of thing where you get them like a VHS tape of them or what have you. And, uh, whichever ones you kind of see first are the ones you gravitate towards the most. And, the monster and uh, the Wolfman. As a as a kid, I, I definitely was the most obsessed with. Although I did play with the idea of like you know trying to figure out how Dracula actually drank blood. <laughs> I always thought, I always thought the fangs were actually hypodermic needles and like that they would draw blood through the fangs. I didn't realize that he was like drinking drinking blood at like you know six and seven. I was going kind of sci-fi with it.
0: <laughs> that sounds cool. Somebody should do that, though. I'd like to see that. That'd be fun, right? Yeah, a different take, a different take, you know.
4: <laughs> but yeah, the the Bride of Frankenstein is definitely one that that resonated with me the most as as a little kid. And obviously, when you first see it as a little kid, it's just the action, the monster, the the weird sort of setting. You don't really think as much about what's going on in sort of the subtext of the story. As you do, as you get older. And I think that might actually contribute somewhat to how you may not have viewed it when you were younger, you know, and just saw it in that, that sort of frame of mind. But when you watch it more as a, as a grown up, and you've already pondered things like, why am I here? You know, that sort of existential nightmare that is life, <laughs> you know, like, why <laughs> am I here? Why was I created? What purpose do I serve? Is there any meaning to my existence? It, you know, Should there be? That that kind of stuff that we all kind of dread. When I say later years, I mean as you're an adult and you kind of realize you really don't know much about life, that's where films like Bride of Frankenstein really kind of come into play. And I'd like to say that I thought about that kind of stuff when I was a lot younger, but I probably didn't. It was more along the lines of just enjoying the monster.
0: Ooh, monsters! <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. yeah, exactly. Those Crestwood House books, they are such a formative part of my growing up and becoming a monster kid. And like you said, I've talked about it before and I'm sure some listeners are tired of hearing about them, but those books, they became my, my Bibles really. I mean, I would read those books back to back to back. Even if I hadn't seen the movies, I would learn the stories and who the actors and the directors were. And I knew who Jack Pierce was and I knew who Lon Chaney was before ever seeing the Wolfman. So those books were so important. And, I probably knew what Bride of Frankenstein was before I saw it because of those books. But because I saw the first Frankenstein film beforehand, I think I was kind of looking more for that or expecting more for that. When you saw Frankenstein eventually, I mean the the original film, were you disappointed because it wasn't quite like Bride of Frankenstein?
4: Actually, no, it was quite the opposite. It was like learning where – this really came from. The prologue of the film for Bride of Frankenstein does give you a previously on Frankenstein kind
3: of <laughs>
4: <laughs> kind of thing where they have Mary Shelley kind of being told the story that she just told again by Lord Byron. And that character really loves rolling his R's as he talks about everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh whenever they kind of do that previously on like wanting to know where that stuff came from, you know, and it wasn't that I didn't want to watch the Frankenstein the original it's just that the local library that my mom got the tapes from didn't have it at the time and when they finally oh, okay. when they when they finally got it it was one of those things where I was like mom 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 I got to get this you know and she's like calm down I'll get it for you it's okay I'm like no we have to go now I have to watch this so <laughs> it, it's like getting to know where the story of Bride of Frankenstein kind of came from whenever I got to see the original Frankenstein and I absolutely Love the original Frankenstein as much as I do the sequel Bride of Frankenstein. It's just that Bride of Frankenstein has that you know it's like it's your first, so it has that special place in your heart because it's the first exposure to the monster that you got.
0: That, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, that that connection to that film. You know, for me, I think maybe it was the beginning sequence with the last time on Frankenstein. You know, I want to see somebody do a YouTube video actually and take that and make it feel like the intro of a TV series, take that, that whole scene and re edit it and make it feel like a TV show. But anyway, <laughs> I think that intro may have been what threw it off for me at the very beginning because I wasn't expecting that. I was like, I, I don't want to be told a story from them. I want to see the movie, you know? Now that I have grown and, and have learned. A lot more about what in, what went into the film. I really appreciate it, and I think it's kind of a bold choice, and I, I really respect it. Although the guy rolling his R's, I think he's just showing off because <laughs> I can't do that.
4: Uh- <laughs> I can do it, but it's atrocious and it seems a little bit uh, gauche whenever I try. So I'm, I'm just going to back off on that one and not even attempt to, <laughs> to do what he's doing there.
0: That's why I haven't bothered to try to learn how to speak Spanish, even though I've got all those Rosetta Stone software because I just can't roll my R's. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I really appreciate that opening bit and just see the – I don't know where the monsters came from in, in this – stylized version of the of the true story of how these stories came about i did appreciate that quite a bit I, I think the direction is stronger through the entire film I mean, the first film you know it's early in the monster wave I, i'm not sure if it's the first film whale did for universal but it's pretty early in his career as well and you know the lemley's had a little bit more control i suppose with their fingers more in the films and and when whale came back to do bride it's It's more whale than the previous film. Some of the weird wackiness that whale would bring to a project in the past. I've described these two films or compared them to like Tim Burton's first two Batman movies, whereas the first one feels very studio. And then the second one, they're like, okay, well, you did a good job. So uh, there you go. Have fun. And he just goes all out.
4: Right. The original Frankenstein is the first, at least in the monster series that whale did. And then he went on to do like the old Dark House and the Invisible Man. Now they wanted to do a sequel to Frankenstein immediately because this was like. I believe there was like a documentary on uh, one of the monster collection discs where one of the people refer to it as the Jaws of its day, if you will. Like It was a blockbuster before they knew what blockbusters were. Sure. And whenever Frankenstein became the huge hit that it, it did, and they were trying to get Bride of Frankenstein off the ground, I mean, in the meantime, he ended up doing The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man. And you can kind of see in The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man where James Whale is being able to inject some of his sort of dark and sort of twisted... Black humor, if you will, where he he throws in a few things that, as particularly more so in the Invisible Man than the Old Dark House, and by the time you get to Bride of Frankenstein, he had already developed enough of a name for himself and had, I think, enough money coming in to where you know the old adage of Hollywood: it doesn't matter who you are as long as you are a star and you're creating hits and making the studio money, they're going to let you run with it. And I think he had developed just enough power in the studio system. To where I mean, he didn't want to do a sequel to Frankenstein at first, so of course he's going to be like, well, if you're going to make me do it and I'm going to get paid to do it, then I want to throw some more money in there and or uh, more ideas and more of my stuff towards this. And I think that's what makes Bride of Frankenstein so special is that he actually was able to inject a lot of his own ideas and uh, his sort of artistic flair. And again, that dark humor that he loves. And, and that's probably why Una O'Connor is featured so prominently in this film, because apparently he thought she was the funniest thing on the face of this earth. Granted, she has an amazing, terrified scream, but I think she plays a little more broad nowadays than what she did probably back then. And when I say broad, I mean like as in broad comedy.
0: She's an acquired taste. I think maybe that's another reason why I didn't dig Bright as much as I felt it was just way too over the top. Again, this is young Derek when I was dumb and stupid and naive and didn't understand. (laughs) Uh, But now I I appreciate that. I appreciate her more in this than The Invisible Man, but I do appreciate that. And just kind of knowing the era these films came out in, you know, the early to mid-30s, what comedy was like back then, it it fits. It made sense to have that type of a character if you're going to bring that kind of dark humor, that subversiveness into a movie like that. So I'm on board with Una. Bring on the Una.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I definitely appreciate her more in Bride than I do in The Invisible Man. I think she fits a little bit better with the overreaction that she does in Bride. And Invisible Man, I still kind of find her a little too broad and a little a little too irritating. I, I think Whale should have reined her in a little bit more in Invisible Man. But that's, that's my opinion. If you guys are fans of Uno O'Connor out there, then you can totally tell me I'm wrong. But hey, it, it's all about taste, right?
0: exactly. And that's not the only role she plays in Bride. She actually appears in the very beginning as well during that prologue with, let me tell you the rest of the story. She's seen as like a servant walking dogs past the camera and she's not over the top or whatever. She's got a very dour face and she just walks by. It's real quick. And I didn't realize that was her until recently, actually, but she does appear at the very beginning as well, which I thought was a nice little touch.
4: Yeah, James definitely uh, I, I speak of him as if I, I know him personally, but James Whale actually um, <laughs> had the the prologue was definitely his idea. According to, again, the behind-the-scenes documentary that I, I was able to kind of squeak in here uh, before our recording, that he pushed for that prologue. He wanted to have the Mary Shelley stuff, and more importantly, it was his decision to have Elsa Lancaster actually play Mary Shelley in that and so, I guess it was so you could kind of give her a credit so that she could be known for all of her hard work as the bride. Because being done up in, even though it was minimal monster makeup, but she was wrapped up like a mummy for a good portion of the film, too, which I'm sure was not comfortable. I think he just kind of wanted to give some of the actors that were in the prologue a little bit more recognition and give them a, a show of their talents, if you will. And I, I know that, that it's been, it's also been, uh, Shown like in uh, the Gods and Monsters film that was about James Whale's uh, later years that has some flashbacks to this sort of thing. They they show in there, too, that he had a, a serious love of Una O'Connor. So I wouldn't doubt that he would try and get her another day's pay, if you will, for being on the set.
0: <laughs> well, in that opening bit, I mean, it's kind of inspired now when you look at it. It's a very meta, very interesting way of, of introducing a story. You don't go to the movies and then have. You know the author or the screenwriter or the director, up and, and this is what happened next, and then you know transition to the film. I thought it was a very interesting way to do it. and I don't know if that was something that was common with films of that of that era in in other non-genre film. I'd have to go back and check, but it seems pretty inspired to me, and I dig it now, especially now that I'm a writer and a storyteller myself. I really respect that.
4: The idea is like uh, almost the first movie was her first telling of everyone before it's even published, so. The reason that it's so different is because this is her just giving a verbal account to friends during a, a late night, you know, with uh, Lord Byron and, and uh and Shelley himself, and then she's there telling the story. You know, they talk about how it's so frightful and then the monster is destroyed and the the fire and the windmill, and she's like, but that's not all, and that's how the story gets kicked off for us, which is just so wonderful. Yeah. And the fact that Whale put that together and that was all of his idea, and he worked on that part of the script. Now, I don't know if I'm over attributing too much. I'm just kind of going on what I know from the documentaries of behind the scenes and everything, but it's so sets up and I think it actually establishes we're going not necessarily from the book, but more of a verbal folklore telling of this, which makes it like around the campfire a lot more fun for everyone. Again, maybe I'm reading too much into it. (laughs)
0: No, I I love it. I mean, we could probably even take it a step further if we really wanted to read into it. Historically, we know this is not the case. We know that Bram Stoker wrote Dracula and we know the Wolfman was a creation of the studio and we know this. But since Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, they all kind of met up and intermingled. I'd like to believe in some way that maybe this was all that Mary Shelley's idea. (laughs) She's the one telling this entire thing. So I'm going to attribute the entire classic universal cycle to the Elsa Lanchester, Mary Shelley that we see at the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein. She's the one telling me the story.
4: Oh, I like that where she's spinning off all of these tales to these two guys that are just so mesmerized that someone so lovely could have such dark and twisted thoughts and that, that, what was it, bland and beautiful brow? I think he says, or something along those lines. Well, that's that's a compliment. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, and then like later on, they they get a little too grabby with her and end up making her poke herself with the the needle, and uh, she bleeds a little bit. And then, of course, because she's a lady, she has to get all swoony because a little bit of blood showed up. How, I don't know how that works, but okay. <laughs> and then that kicks off the frightening tale where they're all sitting together on the couch. Yeah. The opening scene really is—I I could talk for oh, quite a while about it, but uh, we'd be here for too long talking about just the very beginning of the film.
0: No, it's—it's it's a fantastic beginning, and the rest of the movie is good too. I mean, I, I know we're focusing a lot at that intro, but the bulk of the film with the monster with Karloff, who makes a quick appearance at the beginning and then disappears for about half an hour. The rest of the movie is still solid, and I think Doctor Pretorius doesn't get enough credit for a creepy, mad scientist, universal monster type. This guy, as iconic as Dr. Frankenstein, as far as I'm concerned, just so over the top and deliciously bad. I love it.
4: Oh, and he's got probably the greatest Monster Man intro of all time where the fiancé or, or new bride of the actual bride of Frankenstein, if you will, where she's right. she's talking to Henry and she's like, you know, the specter of death is in this room. And she's slowly but surely like being driven mad and, and almost... uh I, don't, I hate to use the term hysterics in, in reference to a female, but I don't know how else to refer to what is happening there because I would say that about a male actor that was acting like that where she's just laughing maniacally and pointing out that the specter of death is here and it's there and then she points directly and right before she kind of collapses on Henry's lap while he's in bed, she points directly at the camera and us and then she says, he's here! And that's when we hear the knock of Pretorius and he's lit like a classic monster where the light is all coming from underneath him. Casting long shadows from that amazing set of eyebrows that that actor has. And the (laughs) the angles of his face are almost like they were carved by a German expressionist artist itself. Like, he just looks wrong when he first shows up. He seems so outwardly wicked. And when you are confirmed by his plot and what he wants to do... He's the real monster in this film. I mean, you know, like Frankenstein's creation may have been considered a monster because as far as I'm concerned, he is misunderstood. But Pretorius is manipulative. Well, he even accredits himself to being like a devil from that little mini creation that he made of the devil that looks like him as far as he's concerned. Like he's wicked and he loves being so the choices that he's made, they're dark, you know,
0: he's a, he's got a dark background, a twisted background. When we learned about how he was driven out of the college or the university because he knew too much. Well, what does that mean? You know, it's, <laughs> there, there's a lot of things here that, that, makes this character so, for me, iconic. I love his intro. When he comes into the bedroom with Frankenstein, the disdain that he has on his face as he's driving the woman out of the room so that he can have a private conversation with Colin Clive. Just the look on his face is enough to kill somebody. It's just this this loathing that he brings without even saying anything. I mean, I think that's a testament to Ernest Thessinger as an actor. And this guy was really good. And I wish there was more with him. I mean, he was in the old Dark House. And I know he did other things as well, but I would love to have seen him in more monster or horror movies.
4: Oh, yeah. He could play a mad scientist for an entire career and just really, really own it every moment. There is a little bit. I know people have kind of there's been various film historians, and it even is played up more so in Gods and Monsters, the film about James Wells' life. But there is a bit of a gay subtext between... Colin Clive's character of Frankenstein and Pretorius, which is why, you know, at one point in time, Pretorius might've been a spurned lover of Colin Clive's character of Frankenstein. And that might be why he has such animosity towards, uh, Frankenstein's newest bride and also why he's there to interrupt them on their wedding night when they should be consummating the marriage.
0: Exactly. And there is a lot of you call it subtext, call it material that went into the background. You can really read a lot of that into this. I like the movie Gods and Monsters quite a bit. I think it's a great film. And if listeners haven't seen it, I highly recommend you check it out. Uh, I think Clive Barker was an executive producer on it. Uh, it's based on a novel that is kind of a historical biography, but there's still some fictional elements. But it's a wonderful film. Check it out if you haven't haven't seen it because it's wonderful. And Elon McKellen yeah,
4: is – Yeah, yeah. Amazing role of his, yes.
0: Yes, he does an amazing portrayal of, of – Uh, James Whale and just flat out fantastic. So thank you for listening to this podcast about gods and Monsters. Anyway, uh, (laughs) The Bride of Frankenstein. uh, You could certainly read some of these things into this. And that's one of the the geniuses of Whale is that I, I fully believe that some of this was intentional. But he put it in in such a way that he still got it through the studio and he still got it released he says he knew too much. Well, I mean, that could be anything I mean, that could be having known a man intimately. I mean, that could, there, there's all sorts of things. He can into this. Ultimately the movie's about two people, two men making a new life without the help of a woman. So you've got all this subtext that you can really read into it, or you can just enjoy it as a monster movie. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I love about this film so much. We mentioned Ernest Thessinger and uh, Colin Clive comes back as Dr. Frankenstein. And, He had his demons, uh, probably not as pronounced as somebody like Lon Chaney, but he had his demons, he had his issues, and he does look a little worse for wear in this film, but I think that fits, considering what happened to his character in the previous film.
4: Yeah, he survives a mill fire, (laughs) is is dropped, (laughs) You know, and then he gets uh, dragged back home, and he's got the guilt on his conscience of all of the death that the creature has caused, of his creation has caused, because he wasn't there to stop it or to teach it. I mean, that's the main gist of Frankenstein's monster, I think, that appeals to me the most is he's dropped into this world with no real explanation as to who he is or why he's there. He has no idea what he's supposed to be. And immediately upon everybody looking at him, they're terrified of him and they immediately want him gone or they want to hurt him. And he's literally an innocent child who is constantly being accosted and assaulted just for looking the way that he does. And I think that's probably the part that really resonated with me as a kid, because you see this creature and he is completely and totally innocent. And you as a child, when you're watching this, or when I say you, I mean me, me as a child, when I'm I'm watching this, you see this creature where he just goes up to people and he just, he just wants to connect with somebody. He wants some kind of companionship or friendship. And literally just because of the way he looks, everybody immediately freaks out at him and yells at him or or throws things at him. And there's very little acceptance in this film because of some of the things that have happened in the other, where he didn't realize, you know, you're not supposed to throw all the pretty things into the lake, (laughs) you know, because he was never taught that he's so innocent, but at the same time, his innocence make him extremely sinister and dangerous because he's a hulking beast that doesn't know any better than to not throw a little girl into a lake because they ran out of pretty things to throw in there. And by the time you see him in this, if this is the first one you've ever seen, all of these villagers assaulting him and hunting him down and you're just like, leave him alone. He doesn't know any better. Just give him a chance. He just needs to be taught something and you really start to feel for him, particularly if you were kind of a, a troubled kid or, or you know, had any kind of not really connecting with other people type of thing or, or an introvert, even as as I was at that age, you know, you you really kind of connect with that creature you just want someone to understand and accept you for kind of who you are. And I think there's a lot of that, which you could even read further into the more subtext that Whale ran within this film as being an openly gay man and and having that kind of prejudice and repression pushed onto him from the world around him. Now, obviously, Hollywood at the time would have been way more accepting than the rest of the world, which is probably why he flourished there. But at the same time, there's always going to be Especially in that time, there's going to be that that knee-jerk reaction that people have if you live a life being true to who you are, that you're they're going to have that same kind of reaction as a monster would. And I, I think that's what really kind of comes out more in this film is the monster reads as a persecuted human being because of just who they are. He's created this way. There's no help for him or, or no change for just being who he is. And yet people automatically hate him for it. And I mean, yeah, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I really see it there.
0: I don't think so. I see it as well. It's, it's the ultimate outsider character and killing somebody's wrong. Sure. Throwing, throwing a girl into the lake. That, that's terrible. Don't do that. Don't do that. But he didn't know any better. And the real tragedy of, of this character is that he's got this father figure who, for whatever reason, doesn't quite take full responsibility or can't take full responsibility for raising him and teaching him. From the moment he's brought into the world, Fritz is throwing a torch in his face. So, of course, he's going to you know, have this kind of weird skewed view of the world and not know how to operate with other people and within society. And just there's so much you can read into this set. As much as I love things like House of Frankenstein like we were talking about earlier, you, you kind of lose some of that because you don't have that this character is an outsider vibe that you get with the first two and maybe even the first three films.
4: When you have more monsters that you're mashing up, you can't really focus on the nuance of the individual monsters you would when they're in their own film. So it's I don't tough. Yeah, I don't fault that in like uh Frankenstein meets a Wolfman or House of Frankenstein that they don't have that kind of same subtext with the monster that you would get in say Bride or or the original Frankenstein. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, the way that Fritz treats him right off the bat, I mean, there's even some kind of allegory to bad parenting and I've always read Mary Shelley's take on the Frankenstein's creation and everything as if it's almost like a fear of parenthood, (laughs) you know, the way that you look at it. Like, you can create this thing, but really should you unless you know that you can properly take care of this child that you're going to make? And it just kind of makes me wonder if maybe some of that was carried over more so in this film than what we had in the original Frankenstein, where it was more or less played up as a man defeating death and kind of becoming God, if you will. And I think the the studios were probably more comfortable with the idea that if science is taken too far and a man tries to act like God, then they will create a monster or they will create a being that will destroy us or, or be destructive. And it, it plays to that sort of religious mentality more so than what it does in The Bride of Frankenstein, where it's more about personal responsibility. Because he's created this, Creature that he has not taken care of and he has not been an actual creator or father to or watched over or protected. It's become this rampant creature that just causes chaos and destruction all around his world. And then it comes into play where an almost, if he's not a former lover, is kind of a almost father figure because he was one of his teachers at one point in time with Pretorius coming in and saying, well, this is what you've done wrong. And you kind of see where there's like a blind man that can't see what is supposed to be wrong with the monster. And so he treats him just on a human level. He tries to communicate with him. He tries to bring him into his world and he shares food and drink and smoke and all these things that are good. And he tries to teach him and he's patient with him. And some people may read into that. I've seen some historians and some uh, film critics read into that as a sort of like a, a healthy relationship between two men or like a loving gay relationship. I look at it more for me personally, as this is a father figure that this, this character, the the creature has never had. And he's there teaching him all of these things that he's never had the chance to even learn before. And when he actually gets this kind of mentor, he actually has a chance that he could be happy. He could be peaceful, but then you have that gay subtext coming in again, where he has someone that will help him along the way. But then the villagers come in and immediately accost him for being who he is and are, are after him again. And he has to run and it just ruins everything. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could probably talk for hours about each of these little <laughs> these little vignettes that that have this kind of subtext to it. And whether it was intentionally put in on James Whale's behalf or developed in such a way that it was nurtured like that. Whether we intend our art to be interpreted that way, like if our our intention is actually there or not, it sort of seeps in, like our own fears, our own thoughts, our own emotions sort of seep into the art that we create. So whether he meant for this stuff to be there as representative there or we're reading into it now, that doesn't really quite matter because once you create an art piece, whether it's a painting or a film or whatever, your intentions and how they are interpreted... Are completely separate because people will always find various things that they'll project over your art once it's done that you really have no control over, but at the same time might even make you change your perspective on, well, maybe that was there and I did it subconsciously.
0: Yeah, as artists, as writers, as storytellers, filmmakers, painters, whatever, we're all influenced by what's around us and then what we've experienced. So all that's going to find its way in one way or the other. And once that art is released into the world, like you said, you don't have control over that anymore. It's you know, up to somebody else to interpret. And, and you might have had a particular point that you were trying to make with this piece. But if somebody else finds another point, it's just as valid. The scene with the blind man, I mean, he literally breaks bread with the monster. And that sequence, honestly, I I think is probably the most affecting sequence of the entire film for me because he's finally found somebody. He's told that being alone is bad. So there's the seeds of, you know, I've got to have a companion being planted here. And the way that whole bit ends is so tragic and so heartbreaking for the monster. I mean, we're feeling bad for Frankenstein's monster here in a way that I don't think I felt bad for him through, well, his entire universal cycle. It's just such a moving moment for me. And of course, it's brilliantly parodied by <laughs> Young Frankenstein, that whole bit. I can't think about this sequence without thinking about what happens in Young Frankenstein with you know, setting the thumb on fire and such. So maybe there's that why I enjoy it too. But
4: <laughs> I actually can't think of uh, this film with the portrayal of Uno O'Connor as mini without thinking of Florence Anderson <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doing Frau Blucher. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) like you just you see it like it's so there's so many steps. She's even dressed up the same, which is why I mean, Young Frankenstein works so perfectly as a parody because it lovingly parodies the whole of the Frankenstein series in one film so beautifully.
0: There's a reason why Young Frankenstein is brought up in various conversations and books and documentaries when talking about the other more serious monster movies, uh, the Frankenstein movies from Universal, because it, it has that loving tribute to these films and yeah, it pokes fun at it, but never at the expense of the films themselves, which I really appreciate and respect. You you said something a little bit ago about, you know, parenting and, and I don't know if whale was aware of this or the screenwriters were aware of this, but Mary Shelley's uh, childhood was different. Uh, it was a little strained at times because her mother died shortly after she was born. So for a little while, she didn't have a mother and her father Sometimes was not debt quite a bit, and things were just a little rough at times for her. So I'm wondering how much of that may have kind of seeped its way into – again, we were talking about with artists and such – might have seeped its way into her narrative and her story telling with Frankenstein. And if any of that carried over to the films, I'd have to do some more research – darn – but <laughs> <laughs> about this to, to find out. I'd like to know more. I don't really know that much about Mary Shelley, to be honest, outside of what I've gathered from various documentaries. I know more about Stoker and some of the others, but – I'd be curious to learn if any of that was either intentional or if other people are seeing that. Do you know much about Shelley at all? I'm assuming you've read the original novel.
4: Yeah, I've, I've read it. It's been quite quite some time since I've, I have read it. But it, like I said, uh, the most of what I got was just my interpretation of what it felt like as I was reading it at the time. I haven't really done a lot of research past reading the book itself. And I'm not the type to kind of go back and learn more about the creators of the things that I love. I do occasionally, but not like others who will delve in and just do a lot of research and do the behind-the-scenes stuff. I like to have the things that I love speak for themselves as is more. So I don't, I don't do a lot of that kind of research. I'll do like not as much as others. Like there's folks that come on your show that know so much that are so knowledgeable about, you know, they they could tell you probably everything about James Whale's life, and I I only know the the precursory things that I've kind of learned just from. Watching the films and, you know, reading a few things here and there, I don't dig anywhere near that deep. I like having those people on because they make my show feel a lot smarter, than,
0: <laughs> a lot more smart than I, I probably would make it sound on my own. So I appreciate all those guys coming in. But I also like the personal attachments to these stories, and, and I, I kind of straddle the line. I, I like to know the background, but ultimately it's about what the art is conveys to me and what what i'm able to find in it and how it affects and changes me and i think this film of all the classic monsters as much as i love creature from the black lagoon is my favorite film i think this one is probably the most affecting of the entire universal cycle
4: i'm silently shaking my head which is great for a podcasting format as you're saying that
0: (laughs) (laughs) I actually had that moment yesterday. I was recording uh, with Kyle Yount over at the Kaiju cast, and he was saying these things, and I did the exact same thing. I'm just nodding along, and then about five minutes in, I realized, this is great podcasting. I'm just nodding here silently, and nobody can...
4: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And where I was speaking of, like, the Wolfman is my favorite universal monster. This film had the greatest effect on me, even as young as I had seen it. Like, while I may not have realized some of the parables, if you will, that were being... Taught to me through this film, I kind of realized that it really did shape my perspective on people as a whole. Where, you know, just because something appears to be a monster or appears to be wicked or appears to be something that you should fear, you should also learn more about it and let it express who it is and not necessarily have that knee jerk reaction of, well, that thing looks terrifying. And I, I think it gives you sympathy for not only Frankenstein's monster, but it gives you sympathy for the outsiders and the others. And it, it gives you an idea of maybe I should give this being a chance because it deserves love and respect just like I would want for myself. And and I think that's one of the main takeaways that you can get from this film. Bright of the Mo- or Bride of Frankenstein is because, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, okay, Bride of the monster is a completely different film. Yeah. Okay. No, no, yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm, <laughs>
4: But I think you can kind of get that that takeaway from this film that whenever you are encountering something that you normally would like look at as a monster, there is a living, breathing, thinking, being there that deserves somewhat of the same kind of love and respect that you would hope for yourself. That's a, a
0: great takeaway from this film. Of course, you can enjoy it just because it's a monster movie, too, and, and it's a very well-done film, but there's so much to to read into it and take from it and, and use it to apply to your own life. And it's just fantastic. I I want to talk about the production a little bit more because unlike the first Frankenstein film, this has got a a pretty lavish score. And I'm a film score geek. People know – this because I won't shut up talking about my soundtrack collection, but I love the music in this and it's not your typical universal monster movie music. It's not the the Psalter or, or Herman Stein or any of that. It's it was a Franz Waxman that did the music on this and I don't think he did a lot with universal monsters. So you've got this unique sound, especially when the bride is revealed. You've got this near wedding like announcement with the bells and everything going on. It's a great piece of music. I I think the rest of the acting in this is pretty solid, even though they recast Elizabeth uh, with a much, much, much younger person. I think she was like 17 at the time. Yeah. uh, Which they had to do uh, because the original Elizabeth was kind of sick and wasn't able to be in the film, is what I've been told or what I've read. I can't think of anybody in the film that kind of fell down on the job. Everybody in this is doing their best and brought their best to this film. Are there any other standouts in the cast or the crew for you? Uh
4: well, we touched on uh, my my personal favorites, um, <laughs> you know. With, <laughs> uh, but I think uh, it can't be kind of underplayed uh, what Elsa Lancaster was able to do in her silent role with this as as the bride. Um, a lot of her reactions and her almost animalistic motions that she does with her face is immediately as soon as she is able to see and and when they first present her, like you were talking about with the the music swelling up almost if it is like this bridal march the way that she's looking around the world is like this confused being it's it's almost like a a being that was kept in captivity forever and is seeing sunshine and you know the open air and and a place where they could roam free for like the first time in their life like the way that she's looking around like very confused and trying to take it all in and then obviously Oh, for our poor creature, she has that same reaction where she's terrified of, of the monster as well and screams every time that they're they're together, <laughs> pretty
0: much. <laughs> no. Her her performance is fantastic. She based that on swans, from what I understand. That, that she yes. and her husband Charles Lawton. Yeah, kind of based some of that on watching these swans, these birds. And I think that that works so well. It gives us this unhuman, near alien like portrayal of what this thing is. And Man, so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely—that's kind of podcasting, right? We're just like, oh, movie's great. Yeah, it's great. Okay, yeah, it's really great. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, yeah, it, that's that's basically one of the things that's great about Monster Kid Radio. Because if you bring somebody on here that's going to just belittle the film, then why even talk to them? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true. That's true. No, I want to celebrate all of these movies, and and this one definitely deserves celebration. I love that she's in the movie for how long as the bride? Just a few minutes.
6: Oh, she yeah, has no dialogue
0: that. outside of the hissing. Yet she has become just as iconic a monster in that original run of Universal films as Frankenstein, as the Wolfman, as Dracula. Yeah, she's on screen for so little time. She's become this iconic figure, the only female in the mix. I know Universal kind of experimented with like the, uh, the ape woman and things like that down the line. And you'd have like the invisible – Uh, Invisible woman, invisible girl, I forget the name of that one, but you you have some of the women coming along, but this is the only iconic female in the mix from that run, and part of it's because she's just so striking, the the look. She never appears again as well. (laughs) Right, yeah, but she's there, and that's that. And they did this beauty makeup on top of the stitches and the sutures underneath the neck, which you barely see. She's just gorgeous. And then, of course, I've got my mummy thing. So wrapping up. Bad news, so. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's more about me.
4: <laughs> Your own mummy issues.
0: Yeah, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> yes, she's fantastic. A few years ago, my wife and I went to a Halloween party and she dressed up as the bride of Frankenstein. She had never seen the film. So I sat her down to show her the movie. And instead of starting from the beginning and going to the end, because she didn't have that kind of time, I just. Fast forwarded to the end of the film and she was shocked that she's only in the movie for what, two, three minutes like that.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, most of the film is more along the lines of the people behind the scenes. You don't really see much of the monster. He, like you said, he disappears. Like he has a brief appearance at the beginning. Then he disappears until about a half hour into the film. There's a little bit of interaction with him and Pretorius as he's, Pretorius is preparing the bride and they're kind of bringing the two methods of creation that, uh, Dr. Frankenstein and then Pretorius were working on separately to create the bride, which is why she's a more perfectly created creation because they both learned from their mistakes and they're fusing their methods together. And I think that's why she ends up being this lovely creature with only just a few stitches and things like that, because other things were used like the, the growth that uh, Pretorius came up with, if you will, (laughs) and make her that. And I think because of such a striking startling uh, creation where she is this beautiful creature that also at the same time can be conceived as a monster because she is back from the dead. She's created from mad science. I think that is probably why she has this long lasting iconic status with only really what five minutes of screen time at most. And then yeah, it's never that. reappearing, never reappearing again.
0: Now in 2007, universal got together with dark horse comics and, Dark Horse published a series of novels, each one using one of the classic monsters. There was a mummy novel, a Frankenstein novel, a creature from the Black Lagoon novel, and some of them were okay. Some of them weren't that great, but The Bride of Frankenstein did get her own novel written by Elizabeth Hand. It was called Pandora's Bride. I did read it. It was not one of my favorite in that set, but she does become a central character and has this whole other life beyond the film. Uh, The humanoculi are also in that movie. Uh, and then Pretorius is another, or, I'm sorry, are also in that book. And then Pretorius is also a character in that book. So you did get a little bit more, but it's not the same. It's, it's not the same. I would love to have more Pretorius. I would love to see more of the Humanoculi. I would like to see that little devil figure causing all sorts of sorts of problems. With the little <laughs> Pope figure, you know, I want to see those two go at it.
4: And then you have the very, very, uh, Randy King constantly trying to get into <laughs> the Queens, a little glass cage and
0: yeah, have the devil trying to help him out and all that. Yeah. Yeah. while
4: well, the Pope is con- like, being very concerned about it and being like no 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 absolutely under no circumstances you stay away from her you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that all of those uh, the homunculi themselves were all all whale too from what I understand so oh
0: sure yeah, yeah. They, they are, they're not in the novel at all
4: <laughs> well yeah and the idea too like the little the little sort of naughty wink wink nudge nudge where you have a, a pope a devil a king and a queen and they're all being kept separately under glass you know that's definitely something that that, that strikes a whale And I actually, I'd like to go back to what we were talking about, various actors. Uh, We'd be very remiss if we didn't mention Dwight Fry's Carl, you know, being a reappearance where he's not Fritz, but he sure looks an awful lot like Fritz.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Dwight Fry, one of the unsung heroes of Classic Universal, really, with what he did, Renfield, Fritz, Carl, the man deserves so much attention and accolade for what he did. And he's great in this, too. I understand, or I think I've read somewhere that there were more scenes with him. There's more stuff, but it ended up being cut or not really included in the film. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I would love to spend more time with... Well, any time I can spend with White Fry is good, but...
4: Yeah. Apparently, Carl's character had killed his uncle or something like that and then blamed the monster on it. And there were too many murders for the censors, so that's one of the things that they had to drop. That's I'm a shame. S- something along those lines. And they do hint that uh, Pretorius is looting or, or kind of lording over them this, this knowledge that... Carl was a murderer, and also Ludwig, I believe. They're, like, they are like might have been in cahoots with it or something along those lines, and that's why they're doing the dirty work for Pretorius. They're doing the grave robbing, and later on, Carl, who was already predisposed to murder, ends up collecting a heart, which apparently was supposed to be Elizabeth's in the original script as well.
0: Yeah, that would have been a bit much. <laughs> you could, I understand why that didn't make it into the film.
4: Yeah, for the time frame, but uh, it does have a certain almost like tragic loss romance aspect to it where they're using Elizabeth's hearts. And it makes sense why the creature automatically, whenever the bride's there, she's afraid of the creature because of the way that the creature has already treated Elizabeth. If you know, the soul resides in the heart, if you will. But Mm -hmm. then her fascination with the doctor and her automatically moving right towards Frankenstein each time, I think because they had to lose the stuff where it's Elizabeth's heart, it doesn't make sense that she would automatically be gravitating towards that one single man as Colin Clive, other than the fact that he's a very attractive guy compared to everybody else in the room, maybe, but, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I that's like, I, yeah, like I'll give
4: them that. I like the idea that it's Elizabeth's heart, but I think it would have been, they could have probably found a way around it where maybe Elizabeth dies a fright or something like that. And then they use her heart to resurrect her. But then maybe that's still too dark for the thirties. So who knows?
0: Well, speaking of things that either had to be dropped or changed, I didn't pick up on this the first few times I watched it, and and of course I didn't know because back then the research material wasn't there. When Frankenstein destroys the lab, when the monster destroys the lab, and you get that long shot of the entire lab as it's about to blow, Dr. Frankenstein is there. Originally, he was going to die in that explosion, Ah. but we know that he didn't. You know, you do see him after that. But if you look at that scene, and I, I think Brenda did pick up on it the first time she saw it. When I showed her the scene with the bride, she did see that he was there in the corner as well. But when he pulls the switch, Pretorius is there, the bride is there, and Colin Clive is there as well. And apparently that wasn't going to fly or whatever. It got changed. But I thought that was an interesting thing to see as well. And. I don't know why that was changed. I'd, I'd have to go back and research again. Darn. But,
4: um, <laughs> you know, I've never really noticed that because I always, always, I was always focused on the disappointment that, you know, the monster at the last minute changes his mind and yells, go, you, you belong, you know, live, we belong dead. And right before he throws that switch, you know?
0: Yeah. It's kind of like an insert shot too, the way they did it. So I don't know if they went back in and did it or what? Well,
4: but- it certainly feels like work. Cause I mean, it cuts right in and it's like tight on his face, you know? <laughs> and, And it it frames him in such a way where it just feels like an insert shot where they're like, well, how do we explain that he's out of the room when we're showing the explosion with him slightly in the room?
0: (laughs) Right. I I mean, I hope I didn't ruin the shot for anybody who hasn't seen it, but it it is there and it's interesting. So Uh, the look of the monster does change a little bit between... The first film in this one, part of it is because Karloff is able to eat. Uh, He can afford (laughs) good meals. But he also had the the dental bridge taken out of his mouth. And if you look at the first film, he's got that kind of hollow cheek where he took that bridge out so his, his cheek would kind of sink in. And then Pierce would highlight it with some more shadows and some more darker makeup. But in this one, he kept the dental bridge in because ultimately he would speak and he would need that in order to be understood. So he does have a more full face eventually that sunken cheek would kind of evolve into a beauty mark you know in later frankenstein films the rest of it though i mean the makeup i feel like is pretty spot on and makes sense got the burn marks and all that from the fire i love the way he looks i mean to me this is probably the best the most iconic the monster looks for me when i think of the monster this is the monster i think of
4: well and his hair is burnt off when you first see him too it's completely burnt off so it's right there's just like little remnants of burnt hair. And then the wonderful thing is, as he appears later on in the film, it slightly starts growing back. You kind of see it sort of come back and having the hair be removed, reveals some more of the clamps and various other things when they change the makeup, because they added a few clamps along the, what is it? The left side or the, it's the left side. Cause there was that one large clamp in the original. And then there's like two smaller ones and some other things that they added in, in this version. And I think the bride version of frankenstein like the bride of frankenstein's version of this monster is probably the one that's the most iconic where they got the most shots of and it's the same as i think the most famous shot of the bride by herself was just a production still of elsa lancaster in makeup sitting in like the mary shelley uh set where they're talking at the beginning where she has her head tilted back I mean, that's the most iconic shot of her that i i I can think of
0: yeah. It's, it's a beauty pose. It's not a monster pose. It's a beauty pose. He just happens to have the monster makeup on and it's uh, maybe this says something about me, but that's beautiful. Well, it, it's a beautiful image.
4: Well, it says something about me that that's the picture of her that I chose to get as a tattoo. So,
5: <laughs>
0: Oh wow. Okay.
4: <laughs> yeah. I have a, uh, my whole life actually has a, a bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster motif going. and And we can get into that a little bit later, but I have a Basil Gogos design of the monster on the inside of my right forearm. And on the outside, I have that pose of her, uh, that photo as a, as a tattoo, but using some of Basil Gogos's color palette, if you will, whenever he paints her. So I kind of made a, I had a hybrid with my tattoo artist there and that's the bottom part of my arm is those two. Wow. I wear my heart on my sleeve, Derek.
0: (laughs) Hey, you know what? There's nothing wrong with that, man. monster kid. Wear it proud. Wear it (laughs) proud. So this film has definitely kind of been with you then for quite a while. I mean, you've got tattoos. How else has it impacted, do you think?
4: Well, my actual bride in in real life, if you will, we were out uh, shopping for Halloween one day right before we were getting ready to be married. It was probably just a few months uh, before. And uh, we went through some various decorations and sort of a more... Uh, Sort of a craft shop, you know, and they had those uh, sort of porcelain figurines that you could build your own Halloween town, if you will. Sure, sure. Well, they have this one where it's the bride and the monster sitting on a swing set that's animated and it lights up. And uh, she's holding some flowers and they're sitting on a swing set and they're looking totally in love. And it's very cutesy. And I walked past it and I saw it moving back and forth and I pointed it to my wife and I said, wouldn't this be great if this was our cake topper? This thing is so cool. And I totally expected her to do the typical thing and be like, no, not at all. That's a horrible idea. Why would we ever do that? But instead, confirming that I have chosen the right person to be my wife, her eyes lit up. She looked at me and she goes, that's perfect. It's wonderful. We should totally do that. And before she even finished with we should totally do that, I already had one of them in my hand because I was like, yes, we're doing this. So my wedding cake topper was that design. And uh, if I can find the picture, I will post it in your monster kid radio group of what our wedding cake looked like. So <laughs> wow. As, as a kid, you you kind of overlook the idea that the bride was terrified of the monster, and that's become an iconic thing in our culture. The bride and the monster has become this thing where they're built for each other. They're literally made for each other. And that's something that I've kind of run with, and that's been a motif for my entire marriage. I've been getting gifts for my wife. Uh, I even have a salt and pepper shakers that are the bride and the monster that have magnets in their lips so that when you set them close enough together, they <laughs> they slide together and kiss with the two magnets holding each other. And I just recently had a print that I purchased where it's a sort of a punk rock version of the bride where she's very tattooed underneath all of the, all of the bandages. And they're sort of almost looking like they're slow dancing, but they're embracing and he's kind of nuzzling up underneath her Very beautiful artwork, and I bought that just recently for my wife for Christmas, thinking, okay, she might not be too happy about this, but no, she absolutely loved it. And uh, the Halloween immediately after my wife and I were married, we even dressed up as the bride and the monster for our Halloween uh, outfits for that year, so...
0: There you go. That's fantastic. That's (laughs) amazing. Uh, If you do find a picture of that cake topper and the cake, I'd love to see that, and I'm sure listeners will dig it, too. Uh, Last year, at a store up here called the World Market, they had, for Halloween, some monster stuff, and they tend to bring in some monster material every once in a while, and it's usually one monster movie represented only, and I don't know why this is, if that's the deal they have with Universal, but last year, they had a lot of Bride of Frankenstein material, so I have, like, three or four throw pillows with stills of Bride of Frankenstein on it. I'm looking at one right now in eyesight of the bride first waking up and Pretorius is on the right and the monsters between Pretorius and the bride and Colin Clive's on the left. And they were supposed to go away after Halloween, but I man, I just love them. So <laughs> they, they are not going to storage. They, they've become part of our living room decor. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I see that that sort of thing where you would ordinarily buy that sort of thing. And, and for me and, and my wife, I would buy that and expect it to go away as well. But because it's become this sort of motif since our, our wedding, like those things are automatically like on the OK list to be out all year round. You know,
0: <laughs> it's the joke that I always hear about when stores put out their Halloween stuff. It's it's not us buying things for Halloween. It's us buying new decor for our home.
4: You know? The, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's yeah, I'm. I'm wearing uh right now I, I have on actually some things that I bought that were supposed to be, you know, just Halloween decor, but I wear it all year round. So totally mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, like our Halloween outfit, if you will, but I wear it all year round, like to lounge around the house. in. so
0: <laughs> hey, we're monster kids, man. It's what we do. So we are.
4: Yeah. Halloween is my Christmas. I've heard you say that oh, yeah. before, but it's absolutely oh, yeah. true. It's the time of year when the rest of the world realizes how wonderful it is to be me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good <laughs> i love that that's good i was gonna say the rest of the world gets it but yeah they they, they they get it they did it they get it and that that's yeah it's my christmas it's my birthday it's my fourth of july all wrapped up and i love that even though we're so many years removed from frankenstein and bride of frankenstein i can still find officially licensed bride of frankenstein material you know in a store that isn't known for having Halloween decorations. I mean world market and buy international soda and tea and stuff there, you know. But you've got Bride of Frankenstein pillows. So yeah, I'm gonna snatch that stuff right up.
4: I'm just jealous that I couldn't find them.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've never dressed up as Frankenstein the same time that my wife dressed up as Bride of Frankenstein. The year that she did Bride of Frankenstein, it was a quick throw-together thing, and I tried to do a Dr. Frankenstein thing. It didn't work nearly as well. That's why there aren't very many pictures of it. Uh, But my wife's (laughs) makeup and and just get up was just amazing. And, again, I think it's a testament to that movie having such an impact just on us as monster kids and and the horror film genre and horror history – fantastic and i love that she gets equal billing with frankenstein's monster with dracula with the wolfman when you have universal putting out another round of universal monster movies which you know they're probably going to do because they know that we'll buy it again they always make sure that her face is included in the logo you know around the word universal monster sometimes the phantom of the opera is included in that mix but usually it's you know the big four or five and she's always right there in there and rightly so
4: I would hope that this new cycle that they're trying for, but I don't hold much hope for them at all, given how they're starting the way that they're starting <laughs> with the the false start stops with, was Dracula untold part of it? Was it not? Like, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but they keep hurting me there. They keep hurting me with their decisions.
0: How many times do you keep going back, you know? <laughs>
4: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I'm hoping uh, against hope that we will get a little bit more of an expansion, of the bride. There's been other movies that have done some things with the character of the bride. Most notably, the one that I can think of is in the 80s with uh, Sting, the movie The Bride, where they focus more on that character and less with the travels of the monster. Now, you may or may not like that depending upon your level of, you know, monster kid purity, if you will, but there's some really interesting stuff going on in that film. I also think that the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that Branoff was involved in focused a little bit more on her character. Although I don't really enjoy the way that that may have done it, but it's there.
0: <laughs> I was just talking about that movie with somebody yesterday. I think at Wizard world Portland at the convention I was at. And I don't think that movie holds up very well. I don't think it's aged very well, but, It still has some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard composed by Patrick Doyle or ever heard composed for a Frankenstein film, at least post the original Universal story. So the music is gorgeous. Robert De Niro is Frankenstein's monster. I don't know. But the music is gorgeous.
4: I hate to say this, but he cannot emote well enough to be the monster. Like his 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 crying always it only works in comedy means where it's like he's fake crying because he can't do it. I don't know if he actually can experience sadness like that.
0: <laughs> and his accent kind of slips in a little bit as Frankenstein's mind. Uh, and it's it's just a little cringeworthy, but you know, it is what it is. You do get more bride action in that film. So there's that.
4: And while I'm not a big fan of Helena Bonham Carter, I think some of the portrayal that she does where she's resurrected and the bold choices that they made to have her damaged uh, scalp exposed with the way that she's stitched back together and the way that she reacts. I, I really appreciated that portion of the film. I think that's probably the part of the film that you can kind of go to and still, I don't want to say enjoy, but like you can actually see what they were trying to do as opposed to what everything else about the film that might've missed way more than hit for me.
0: I like Helena Bonham Carter pre Burton. And so I did like her in that quite a bit, but yeah, I mean, nothing really taps Elsa or tops. Elsa. excuse me, nothing really tops Elsa, but she's just so good. And it's unfortunate she didn't do more uh, genre work. I mean, I know she had one heck of a career. And I think she even turned up in an episode of The Night Gallery at one point. But, yeah, she didn't do a lot of genre stuff, which, I mean, good for her. I mean, she's clearly a successful actress in other ways. But I would have loved to have her in more stuff. And not just because I think she's pretty. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, we were talking about it. But, like, you know, we mentioned it before. She has maybe five minutes if I'm being generous of screen time, but the two of them together is probably less than a minute of the monster and the bride interacting. And just those few moments together are so iconic and so captured the hearts of our culture to where people have expounded upon that to where the bride and the monster have this life together that no one ever really sees. We just kind of create this idea that hey, they were made for each other, and we've all kind of run with that. And there's been other incarnations that you see that with like uh, various like cartoons or monster mashup things where there's always like even the Hotel Transylvania, you always have the bride and the monster are together, and they might have some kids or whatever. You know, there's always this thing where they end up together. I think we really want to see that. You know, two people that were literally made for each other out of out of dead bodies to be happy together. I think we want to create that happy ending that may not necessarily be there in the film, and that's one of the things that kind of makes me think that maybe our culture is headed in the right spot. You know, we want to see people be happy together, (laughs) even if they're monsters. Especially if they're monsters, because monsters (laughs) need love too, man. That's
0: right. That's (laughs) right. I think that's a nice way to kind of end our conversation here. the monsters need love. That's Absolutely. what this movie's about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Is, is there anything else you'd like to say about the film before we we start wrapping up?
4: No, no, I'm I'm definitely good. This has been an amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Hey, I've had a blast. And again, listeners check out court's podcast. Again, keep in mind the the slight difference in terms of rating, (laughs) uh, (laughs) whether or not there's the explicit tag or not, but it's still a fun conversation that he has with his people over there. And the, the audio, the production is top notch. So go check out cinema psyops and it's A Podbean podcast? Is that the best place to find
4: it? It is currently on Podbean, but we actually have just been accepted into the Legion podcast. We're now part of the podcast network that is the Legion podcast. Oh, okay. So I'm migrating everything over there, but you can still find it on Podbean, but you're going to find us on the Legion podcast website, and I'm going to move our iTunes feed and everything over. It's just a matter of a year's and a half's worth of back material of every week being released. So we're talking about 80 episodes now that has to be migrated over and and re set up before i completely migrate the feed but you can find it both places currently but uh, we're moving towards legion podcast
0: i'm not familiar with the legion podcast it's kind of a network with a bunch of yeah hey i'm looking at that right now holy cow there's a lot of shows there
4: yes i actually have been interacting with all of them to where i was like the the outsider kid that maybe had like a little rough upbringing that you know hung around this family because they fed him and and treated him well and then <laughs> they finally got to the point where they're like look buddy You're here all the time anyway. Why don't you just move into the house and and hang out with the family and become a member? So, you know, Bo over there adopted us, and now we are a member of that Legion podcast family.
0: Right on. I should check some of these out. I'm familiar with some of the shows here, but not all of them.
4: I highly recommend all. I love every show that's on that network. (laughs) I can highly recommend it because they're great people and they're great casts. So, yeah check it out legion podcast is great
0: yeah legionpodcasts.com uh, i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to this episode of course so people can go check that out as well and check out cinema psyops and apparently a good another 15 or so of podcasts to check out so go check those out as well court we're gonna have to have you back on i, I think we need to have you back besides we've got a second deck of the classic five to play so
4: <laughs> anytime derek you just let me know i'll be waiting
0: Huge thanks to Court for a couple of different reasons. Like I said, at the top of the show, he really bailed us out by having a copy of this recording that I could use to make this episode. So thank you for making that happen, Court. I appreciate it. And thanks for being part of the show. Listeners, you can check him out again. Go over to LegionPodcasts.com and you can find a link to Cinema PsyOps right there alongside other genre movie podcasts. Let them know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. Court, we'll have you back on the show down the line.
1: the imagination, the fantastic fire monsters raging out of the flaming bowels of hell, mighty Gigantus crushing whole cities in its wrath, and deadly Angurus screaming its challenge of mortal combat, the battle of the ages, scenes and sights and sensations beyond anything the screen has ever shown.
2: C-3PO Loki Mace Windu
6: Dr. Bruce Banner
2: Captain Rex Venom Princess
6: Leia Jean Grey Darth Maul Nick Fury Grand Moff Tarkin Captain America Lando Calrissian Cyclops
2: What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson.
6: A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee.
2: Come on guys, you know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and Lucas Arts.
6: We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer,
2: which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles you'll never know what we'll decide to talk about.
6: So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes, because now we've got a lot more to talk about.
2: And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully,
6: Fozzie Bear,
2: Buzz Lightyear,
6: Link Hogthrob, Doug, Janice
2: Merida Pepe Pepe,
6: Bruce Ralph the Dog Wally The Disney Indiana Podcast
2: Even after five years we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street USA We're not listed on the map But you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com
1: It's coming From the deep dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks I love him Young Frankenstein
5: Sky means business.
1: Young Frankenstein!
2: Oh dear, nothing left. What shall we throw in now?
3: Starring
1: Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. But what about your grandfather's work, sir? My grandfather's work was doo-doo! Peter Boyle as the monster. Wow! Marty Feldman as Igor. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Floris Leachman as Frau Blucher.
2: You played that music in the middle of the night? Yes!
1: To get us into the laboratory. Yes! And it was you who left my grandfather's book out for me to find.
2: Yes!
1: So that I would? Then you and Victor were? Say it. He was my boyfriend! (laughs) Kerry Gar as Inga.
5: Would you like to have a roll in the hay? Roll,
1: roll, roll
3: in the hay.
1: Kenneth Mars as the inspector. And Madeline Kahn as Elizabeth.
3: Where am I? <coughs> Calm down. What are you going to do to me? I'm not afraid of you.
5: <coughs>
3: Listen, i I'm, I have to be back by eleven thirty. I'm expecting a very important call. Kill the monster!
1: Stormy Castle, instantly! Dead! See Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein. Yes, I think we could all use a good laugh. But don't see it alone. Don't miss Young Frankenstein, personally directed by Mel Blazing Saddles Brooks, in black and white. No offense.
0: If we're friends on Facebook or you follow monster kid radio, the page, or you've joined the monster kid radio group, you might've seen that I've posted a link to a survey. I'm doing the first ever monster kid radio listener survey. And the reason for this is two, threefold, or many reasons for it. Really bottom line is as much as I love doing monster kid radio for myself, I know that you are making a commitment of your time and energy by spending time listening to the show and, and being part of the audience and in, in some cases, part of the Monster Kid Radio family by being a guest on the show or, or that sort of thing. I love it. I love that we have some community building here, and I want to make Monster Kid Radio best serve you guys and gals. Now, I'm not handing the reins to the show over to you guys and gals completely. There are some things that I'm going to do on this show that I love doing, and, and I do it for me, but I also want to do the podcast for you too as well. So if you head over to tinyurl.com mkr survey it's going to take you to a google form that's just going to ask you some basics like how long have you listened to the show how'd you first hear about it have you ever recommended it what do you like about the show and what don't you like about the show don't hold back talk about me like i'm not in the room there's not a place for you to put your name and email address so i'm not going to hold grudges or anything like that like i said i just want to make the show better moving forward and i know i can do that with your help thank you everybody for being part of the show this week by listening to the show, downloading the show, and maybe even giving us an honest review in iTunes. We're still trying to get to 100 reviews by Halloween, and as of right now we've stalled out at 76 reviews. So if you're an iTunes user, please consider giving us a review in the iTunes store. Of course you can always like us on Facebook or join the Facebook group as well. This is all linked to by our website at monsterkidradio.net which is where you can find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes like our contact information kid radio at gmail.com and our voicemail line it's five zero three four seven six five MKR as five zero three four seven nine five six five seven. I'll make sure there's a link to the Rondo Awards. You know you can still vote in the Rondos this year. The Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards is a combination of the Oscars, the Emmys, uh, whatever it is they give stunt people, uh the Blue Ribbon you get at the State Fair. I mean, it's everything to us Monster Kids, and the ballot this year is packed with all kinds of great Monster goodness. Of course, I'd appreciate your support for Monster Kid Radio. We are nominated for Best Multimedia this year, but I think the thing that we really want to push for is making sure that the people at the Rondos know that we all believe them. Vince Rotolo, the late host and founder of the B movie cast deserves to be in the monster kid hall of fame. When you fill out your ballot, make sure you make a note of that. But I think it might also help if you join their message board and post in their forums that you want Vince Rotolo in the monster kid hall of fame this year, RondoAward.com is where you're going to want to go for that. And like I said, I appreciate your support, but please let's see what we can do about getting Vince in the hall of fame. There's still a few days left to help fund Seb Godin's movie like Canimator over on Indiegogo. I'll make sure there's a link to that. There's going to be a link to Joe Iden's Fandom Radio podcast. Over on the left, we have a section of special thanks for people who are supporting Monster Kid Radio at the AIP level or higher through Patreon. And shout out to Charles for becoming a new patron of the show. If you want to become a patron of Monster Kid Radio, well, there's a place for you to click to do that as well. Basically, I make it really hard to not be able to find anything that you need to know about Monster Kid Radio or what we do, either on our website our Facebook page. We even have a Twitter page that I don't do much with, but I'm there, so we're easy to find online. So if you can't wait until next week for some Monster Kid Radio goodness, well, we're not that far away. Next week on the show, we are going to go into the 70s when I have Scott Morris back on the show. It's been a little while for Scott. Scott is, well, a dear friend of mine. A podcast legend. He's one of the fine folks behind the Disney Indiana podcast. When we were doing 1951 down Place," he was my co-host over there, and he's a big fan of the 1977 film The Car.
1: Evil has visited the earth in many forms. Now it returns as The Car.
3: There was no driver in the car. the car
6: possessed. I know why he didn't go into the cemetery. The ground was hallowed.
1: stop the car
6: this is wade we
1: can't let him through no matter what stay in close stop. there's nowhere to turn the car he's in here nowhere to hide no way to stop the car
2: i, th- I think i hear the engine of that car It's around here somewhere. Wait, I'm scared. No, I promise you I won't go out. Tell me what to do, baby. I... I, I, uh, uh.
1: What evil force drives the car?
0: That's going to be coming up next week. (laughs) And, oh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, monster kids of all ages, I am so... Excited, you know, I mentioned that hard drive crash a little bit ago. Well, Tom Doffel, my own personal cyber Dr. Frankenstein, was a Dr. Cyber Frankenstein, whatever. He is the man, he's the man who's responsible for building the monster box that's what we call the computer here at the Monster Kid Radio Castle. But he also helped to make sure that most of the data if not all of it, really, because I haven't really dug as far as I need to, uh, from the old hard drive, has been restored. You know what that means? It means that a couple of the recordings that I thought were lost are not lost, which means you're going to hear some more new voices on the show in the future. I'm talking about Troy Howarth. He's an author, he's been doing DVD commentaries, and he's a fan of Bela Lugosi's Poverty Row horror films. So he's going to be on in the near future to talk about The Ape Man. You're also going to hear Jeff Owens. Now, at the time... When I recorded with Jeff, he had just launched his podcast with Rich Chamberlain. But since then, there's been two or three episodes, so he's got his own podcast going, but he's going to be here in the near future as well to talk about The Invisible Man Returns. I've got a recording on deck with Michael Legge about his new book, Monster Kidding. And this weekend, I've got two more recordings scheduled, one with an old favorite and one with a new voice, but somebody who's been listening to the show for a while. So lots of stuff coming up in the near future. I can't wait to share it all with you. It's going to be exciting. You know what I need to do is get my hands on that time machine from the movie The Time Machine. And that way I can just fast forward to every Wednesday night, Thursday morning, to when there's a new episode of Monster Kid Radio. Because this is what I live for, man. Anyway. Thanks for listening, and big thanks to the band The Mighty Swells. Again, you can find them at themightyswells.bandcamp.com and pick up their album Off the Top with The Mighty Swells. It's $6 Canadian to get nine tracks, including the song Mr. Infiltrator, which is what we use to open the show and what we're going to use to end the show. They are based out of Montreal, and they have a couple of upcoming shows. On April 1st, they're going to be at La Montreal, Surf Night, April 1st. Check them out. There's an event page in Facebook. And then later in April, on April 22nd, they're going to be playing at the La Tarantino show, and that's happening at Tazaniel Albia. And I apologize so much. I probably mispronounced both venue names. But again, there's Facebook event pages. You can find it by doing a search for the Mighty Swells on Facebook. If you happen to go to any of those shows or buy their album, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. That means all the original stuff you heard is Monster Kid Radio LLC's, but the song Mr. Infiltrator, that belongs to the Mighty Swells. Again, the album is off the top with the Mighty Swells. Hope you enjoy the song. Hope you enjoyed the show. And I'll talk to everybody next week. Tchau.